Hello, everybody, and welcome to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. I'm Lena Lahire, certified personal trainer, nutrition coach, best-selling author, and psychology student at the University of Calgary. I'll be discussing topics that range from nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and everything in between so you can feel confident in how to move towards better health physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get into our topic for the day. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's show. Today, I have joining me Megan Miller. Megan is a non-diet registered dietitian nutritionist with her own private practice, Serenity Nutrition Co., based out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Using a weight-inclusive, health-at-every-size approach, her practice specializes in PCOS, disordered eating, and eating disorder recovery. Throughout her career, she has watched women struggle with failed diets, obsessive food rules, and poor body image. Her goal is to break this cycle and help women to live the life they deserve. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to have you here too. So why don't we start the episode by you sharing with our our listeners how you got into this industry? Yeah, for sure. So it's kind of funny because um, in high school, I thought I was going to go into nursing. Um, I, I knew I wanted to do something in the healthcare field, um, and I really didn't know about dietitians, um, and I just knew um, that nursing, you could get a good job, um, it had good job security, so I went into nursing my freshman year of college and took Nursing 101, and I was just, this was not for me, <laughs> um, so I actually had a mentor that I was a few years above me, and she introduced me to nutrition. Um, and we had a really good program at my school, so I was thought, well, I can make this change. Uh, a lot of the classes were similar, so I didn't have to do a lot of, you know, finagling to get the right class load, and I started with it my freshman year, and I continued. Um, I've always had an active lifestyle. Um, I've been curious about nutrition, so it, it did fit um, once I finally figured out that it was a career path. <laughs> Amazing. So what, what is the difference, if you can explain um, for our listeners, the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist, or is there a difference? What, can you explain that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the past few years, it may, the um, Academy of Nutrition made it a little confusing because they added nutritionists onto the end of our credentials. So it is registered dietitian nutrition, nutritionist. But in order to have that RDN credential, there was a lot of schooling. So you go to four years or so of undergrad to get your um, bachelor's in nutrition, and then you have to do an unpaid 1,200-hour um, internship where you do clinical, food service, community, eating disorders, uh, just a cornucopia of different settings. And then once you finish that, um, you take your national exam. Um, and then in a few years, you will have to have your master's in order to be able to sit for that exam. So um, there's a lot of science in the background. There's a lot of food science, a lot of anatomy, chemistry, um, a lot more that goes into it than a lot of people realize. Mm -hmm. So and people, you know, on social media or on the internet can call themselves a nutritionist if they have a 
liking for nutrition, if they've taken a few courses in college but never finished, um, if they consider themselves an influencer. Um, you don't have to have any credential or testing or schooling to label, label yourself as a nutritionist. So there is a big distinct difference. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. And, you know, it's really actually kind of scary that you could be, you know, following someone on social media and just because they might have a body that you want or, you know, post a bunch of food pictures, you immediately feel like they're qualified. And, you know, like you're saying, there's so much school, there's so much science, there's just so much work that goes into being qualified that it's, it's such a shame. I know in Canada here, you can't call yourself a nutritionist. That's awesome. Yeah, you can't. Uh, so for me, I did some nutrition training in university for personal training. Mm -hmm. And then I also did another year at an academy of nutrition that focused on eating psychology. But I can't call myself a nutritionist because I'm not. Yeah, but that's that's a really interesting background. But I I really appreciate you understanding that there's a, a distinct difference in the schooling and the training. Um, and like you said, a lot of people, you know, begin on social media and they see, oh, eat like me, be like me, or you know, work out like me. And I I kind of compare it to you know doctors or lawyers or other professions. You're not going to go to social media and take all this advice, you know legal advice from a lawyer on or a lawyer on Instagram, but it goes the same way. I mean, people are taking nutrition and body image and, you know, exercise advice from people that they may not know anything in their actual background. So. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I really commend what you're doing. So tell, tell the listeners a little bit about some of your specialties. I am, you know, pretty well adversed in the eating disorder arena, having struggled with an eating disorder myself. Obviously, I can't work with clients that have eating disorders. That's out of my scope. But I actually don't really know anything about PCOS. And I would love for you to explain what that is, how prevalent it is, and different things that you can, that women who are struggling with PCOS can do. Yeah, definitely. So my interest in PCOS stemmed from just an interest in women's health um, from when I first started my career as a dietitian and it evolved into wanting to focus on PCOS because there is so much lacking like you said you as you are in the healthcare field and you you don't know much about PCOS and I, I went across that more times than I can count that you know even some doctors or your nurses um, healthcare professionals just don't really understand what PCOS is so when I was trying to delve into what I wanted my niche to be I just saw a very big hole in a lack of resources for women and PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome it affects 10% of women um, so it's what it's the most prevalent endocrine and reproductive disorder that women deal with. Um, but unfortunately, the research for PCOS and, and the healthcare availability is not there, even though it is so prevalent. So women with PCOS, um, they're, in order to be diagnosed, there is um, a criteria that you have to meet two of the three criteria. And one is an irregular period or no period or very long periods, just something that's not your normal um, 
you know, 28 day cycle for women. And then um, high androgen levels, so like high testosterone, which can lead to facial hair growth, acne, um, all those kinds of unfortunate symptoms that women can deal with. And then also there is kind of where the name came from, you can experience fluid filled follicles on your ovaries. And they almost call them pearls. They, they look like pearl like sacs. And that can only be diagnosed through an ultrasound. But in order to have PCOS, you have to have two of those three things. So honestly, you can have PCOS and not even have the polycystic ovaries that you think of when you think of the name. Very interesting. Um, I, I went through a few bouts. Um, I've just started to recover as well from hypothalamic amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. And I, the only reason I kind of know what PCOS is, is because when you're going through something like that, they also can kind of check for PCOS. Mm -hmm. What is the crossover between HA and PCOS? So it's funny that you say that because PCOS usually is, it's a, it's a syndrome of elimination. So you go through all of these different criteria that you could have. And then once those are all gotten out of the way, then you diagnose with PCOS. So HA and PCOS can very much overlap just because of that irregular or no period. Um, but with HA, it's more common, and I'm sure you can speak to it, to it can be because of undernourishing, um, overexercising, um, things are, you know, high stress situations that we're not dealing with, you know, poor sleep can lead to that HA because your body when, when, you're, when your body is having its monthly cycle, it's more than just if you're wanting to have a baby, it's showing good health. And so when your body feels that it's undernourished or overexercised, it's going to take away your period because it does not feel safe to have a baby. Um, and so with HA, if we you know in, in increase our calories and maybe do some more yoga instead of high intensity training, things like that, we can bring our period back and with PCOS, you can, you can regulate your period, but there's a lot more components um, genetically, environmentally that you deal with with PCOS, such as like insulin resistance, those high testosterone levels, um, things that take a little more digging um, compared to HA, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. So I guess with PCOS, how do women develop it? Is it largely genetic or, you know, like with HA, a lot of the time it's kind of self-inflicted, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So with PCOS, unfortunately, just because the research is lacking, we don't exactly know why some women have PCOS and why some women don't. We do believe there's a big genetic factor. So if you have um, a, a mom, a sister, an aunt that has PCOS, you are much more likely to have PCOS. Um, and we also believe there's environmental factors. Um, and people and women can have PCOS for a few years, you know, and not know it or just not have all of these symptoms. And then some big stressor happens in their life, which exacerbates these symptoms. And then they start to realize, okay, something might be a little off. Um, so some women can have it for years and never, never even know it. Mm. And does that cause long-term damage? What is the implications of PCOS? So unfortunately, PCOS is very misdiagnosed. It can go, like I said, it can go a long time. You can have to visit two, three, four doctors before you get that PCOS diagnosis. And no matter when you are diagnosed with PCOS, there's always interventions you can do to improve your quality of life. So 
while we, we want to catch it as early as possible just to give you a better quality of life and be able to help you with the symptoms that PCOS causes, um, there's no cure for PCOS. So even if you catch it, you know, early on in your life, you're not going to be able to cure it before it gets to, you know, time for you to start a family or anything. Um, but the earlier you do catch it and diagnose it, you can take those steps to implement the interventions to help you control your symptoms and get the period back sooner or regulate your period or, you know, reduce your acne, things that, you know, just cause daily struggles. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those interventions that you typically prescribe? I know we can't prescribe anything <laughs> to listeners, right? Um, yeah. Like just general things that um, someone who thinks they have PCOS, and of course, we need to caveat this by saying like, you need to see someone professional. You can't self-diagnose PCOS. <laughs> like you, you need to go and see a dietitian, see a doctor, like figure that out. But what are some general lifestyle changes someone can make? Yeah, so a lot of the times, and another reason I, I really enjoy working with PCOS is because the only intervention they're told is to lose weight. Um, and with women with PCOS, the weight fluctuations and losing weight can be a lot harder um, due to the insulin resistance and just what's going on in the body, which can lead to you know shame, guilt, eating disorders. Um, so I wanted to be a person that looked, be looked beyond the weight and looked beyond, just lose weight at all costs, no matter what it means for your mental health, emotional health, anything. Um, and so what I like to do is I like to look at the symptoms and the whole body. And one of the biggest things you can do to help your PCOS is to manage your blood sugar. So a lot of women have insulin resistance when you have PCOS. Just because you have PCOS, it does not mean you have insulin resistance, but many women struggle with insulin resistance when they have PCOS. Um, but anyways, you to manage your blood sugar, one of the best things you can do is eat regularly. Mm -hmm. So eating every three to four hours, um, eating really good complex carbs with good fiber, pairing it with a protein source. Um, so I like to add foods back into women's diet. You know, a lot of times with PCOS, if we're looking on social media, we see eliminate dairy, eliminate gluten, eliminate all these foods that there isn't a lot of science behind it. I mean, there are a few research articles, you know, and the very small studies that show some improvements with some dairy or things. But for most women, you don't need to eliminate all these foods and cause all of these food rules and poor body issues and poor um, relationship with food. You can add in food that's going to really help maintain that blood sugar. Um, so for one, Stabilizing blood sugar and stabilizing eating patterns is something that I really focus on at the beginning. Um, and then another thing that women don't realize is the stress. The, the stress that it causes that you have on your body can really exacerbate PCOS symptoms. So working on stress management and ways to reduce stress in your daily life is another big component, regardless of your weight, that you can focus on to really help manage your PCOS symptoms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you're saying that, is it more common for women that have PCOS to kind of struggle with their weight because genetically they're just more insulin resistant? That's a, it's correct. So a lot of times when women go to the doctor and they get that diagnosis of PCOS, they will be told lose weight and you, you'll feel better. Your, your, your symptoms will decrease. And it kind of, I kind of compare it to climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> you have all of this resistance on you when you have PCOS, when you're trying to lose weight. Um, so a lot of women 
they, they try and they aim for that, you know, five, 10, 15 pound weight loss. And if they get there, they probably did it in a very unhealthy way. And they did it with unsustain, unsustainable interventions, you know, crash diets, things of that nature, or they realize they can't. And so it starts this body shame and guilt process that increases stress, increases anxiety, and which just kind of is a domino effect and circles back to the beginning. So um, yeah, weight issues are one of the biggest hurdles I see with women with PCOS, which is why I don't want to focus solely on the number on the scale. I mean, there are so many things we can look at, lab values, stress management, things of that nature, regardless if your weight changes and your PCOS can improve. Mm-hmm. That's really that's so interesting. It makes me, um, it makes me think about it. Well, it actually just gives me a little bit more compassion for, you know, women, like you don't know what someone's going through and maybe they don't even know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some, some women just have such a hard time losing weight, even if, you know, they quote unquote need to, or they've been told to by their doctor and there could be so many other factors at play. What's yeah. happening? Um, with the other hormones for women with PCOS, like leptin and ghrelin, are those, um, are those altered in any way from kind of like a normal value? Yes, in some terms. And with PCOS, it's hard to say like, everybody will have this, everybody will not because, you know, all, all the symptoms are different, but Def- definitely um, regulating hunger hormones can be off, um, regulating, like you said, like testosterone hormones and estrogen, progesterone, all of those hormones can be off. And when you have irregular hormone balance, it's going to affect your hunger cues. It's going to affect um, how you feel when you're full or if you ever do feel full and satisfied. And a lot of women that I talk to in, with PCOS, they don't, they, they fear food in the sense that they don't want too much of it and they don't want to feel satisfied by it because if they feel satisfied they think they're going to overconsume it so they try to eat the bare minimum just to get by at some some women and then hopefully they never experience that fullness or that satisfaction because they never allowed themselves to get there Mm. which again we know women with PCOS are six times more likely to develop an eating disorder Um, And one of those eating disorders being binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And it's a natural cycle. When you restrict, 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 your body's going to have to compensate for it at some point, which leads to those binges, which leads to that shame and guilt that we've been talking about. And it just starts that cycle right over. It's interesting that you brought up uh, binge eating disorder because I actually wanted to touch on that with you and get your opinion. Obviously, we're at a very stressful time in life right now. Everyone's isolated um, when we're our stress levels are higher we have a tendency to go to the things that we can control one of those being food are you seeing a rise in binge eating with with clients at this time i i don't know if i necessarily see a huge rise in it but more so just noticing it more like the the clients are noticing it more because they have so much more time to think about it Mm. or the effects of the binges are a lot worse now because they have all the all day to think about what they did last night or they they don't have as much distraction um and which in in terms it may help them realize okay I, i i need i want help 
because now I realize just how much of the spectrum in my life when we're so busy day to day that we just kind of think, oh, I can deal with it. Um, but I, I have noticed them saying, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing it a little bit more or I realize I'm doing it more, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what's the difference between binge eating and just overeating in general? Can you explain for our listeners? Yeah. So a lot of people that deal with eating disorders don't believe they have one because they don't meet the criteria, quote unquote criteria. And there is a lot of gray area with diagnosing eating disorders. And you can, what, what is a binge to me may not be a binge to you. And, and vice versa, you know, what, it, what, it, what a binge is to your, to your significant other may be an, a, a normal meal for you. Mm-hmm. So if you are overeating, you know, and you're doing it every once in a while and you kind of feel that, you know, I want to lay down feeling after a few meals here and there, it's more of just overeating. You may have just had, you know, one plate too much at, at, at the buffet that day or something. But with, with a binge, with a binge, it, it's you. It's usually a form of restriction. It, it, it's a result of restriction. So if you notice that you maybe have one meal during the day and then you eat, you're so hungry at night that you just can't control how much you're eating. And that happens often, you know, one, two, three times a week. It may be more than just an overeating issue, or, or it may be more than just, oh, you're feeling a little more full than usual. Um, and usually binges, are met with a lot of guilt and shame. And if you're overeating, sometimes you just feel like, oh, I just ate a little too much, but I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have all that mental health bogging you down, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, the eating disorder that I struggled with was bulimia. So I have um, a soft spot in my heart for binge eaters, obviously, because I was one. And yeah. I like to explain it as just this like food coma that you go through. It's like you just kind of lose all control and you just you just go for it, right? And with overeating, you know, now that I'm so far away from that, yeah, I, I love how you said you just kind of feel like you need to lay down after a meal. You're not like, you know, standing in the cupboard with the, with the door shut, like this <laughs> eating as many crackers or whatever else you're binging on at that moment as well. And I like that you said food coma because you kind of, I almost feel like some people detach from from themselves and you don't even know what you're doing, thinking about what you're doing. So I I like that you put it that way. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. What, um, What kind of advice would you give for people who are struggling with binge eating? Because I, I know a lot of people that do struggle with binges. Um, first, I would just give yourself a lot of compassion. Um, it's a, it's, it's something that a lot of people in our culture don't like to acknowledge or don't think it's a big issue. Um, because in our society, we believe eating, dis- eating disorders have one look. And if you don't look like you have an eating disorder, then you don't actually have one. Um, so a lot of people that struggle with binge eating disorder just don't even think that their disorder is valid. So I really, I really want them to at first validate those feelings and validate that they deserve help and they deserve compassion, no matter what spectrum you're on, on the eating disorder spectrum. Like, even if you think something may be a little off or a little wrong, you deserve that help. So my first advice is 
seek help, seek advice from a registered dietitian, a therapist, talk to your doctor. Um, it's, I'm, I'm very much an advocate for a team approach. I, I don't believe that one, like I don't believe that you should just be seeing a dietitian if you have an eating disorder. It's a whole team effort. Um, so I, I encourage clients to seek out a therapist, doctors, and have everybody on board. And then another thing I recommend is trying to eat more regularly. And it's not a very sexy um, intervention, which a lot of people are just like, what? But it's, it's something that is so important because if we are nourishing our body adequately every three, four, five hours, your body does not feel that need to compensate and overindulge or binge, you know, at some point during the day. So I would say seek help and then maybe start to regulate your eating, even if that means setting timers on your phone of I'm going to eat at eight and noon and four. And even if you don't have to have a big meal, but even if you just start getting your body used to eating more regularly, that's a great place to start. And that can be really scary for someone who has spent a life dieting and has been told that they need to restrict food or, you know, just like the old adage, exercise more, eat less, mm -hmm. obviously doesn't work. If it worked, it would have worked a long time ago. But yeah. there's still, and I mean, like, if you don't eat, eventually you will lose weight. But mm -hmm. like, it's not going to be good. And all of yeah. that will come back eventually. So that can be probably a pretty scary prescription for someone who has spent a life restricting. Exactly. And that's why I, I really, really advocate for seeking help. Mm -hmm. um, all of the, you, you don't need to do this alone. Um, there is no, and it's like you said, if for somebody, if you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, just now realizing that you deserve help and you want help, you have to break down 50 years of, like you said, diet mentality and food rules and restricting yourself. So one, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a, a process. And don't compare yourself to somebody that recovered, you know, quote unquote, recovered in three months. It may take you three years, but just starting somewhere and starting with help um, because you do have a lot of walls to break down and it's really hard to do by yourself. Yeah, I love that you said that. Can you talk a little bit about food rules? Because we've, we've thrown that term out a bit here. Um, just for people that may not know what that means. Yeah, so food rules can be different for everybody. Um, I like to think one that comes to mind for me is I used to hear a lot, you can't eat after seven o'clock or all of it will go um, straight to your hips or, you know, whatever, whatever body part you want to. Very scientific, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> um, but that's something that you think of. Or I can't ever eat you know, X, Y, and Z, because it'll lead to all this weight gain, or I'll be out of control around food, or just things that, and, and they're not even necessarily made up, because a lot of those food rules we, we have on ourselves, we have heard from the exterior around us. We've heard from social media, or Dr. Google, or other or TV shows, you know, anything that we hear, but food rules are things that force us to listen to the outside world rather as opposed to our hunger and fullness cues. Mm. Um, so a lot of people like I, I talk to, you know, the whole eating after a certain time, if they have a late work shift and they're hungry when they get home, but it's after X, X time, they don't eat because they're not supposed to. 
So that's just a food rule that comes to mind, but there are many food rules. And one exercise that I love to do is you just sit down and you think, what are some of the food rules that are, I am tied to on a daily basis? What are things that I, in, in, instead of listening to myself and what I need and what, what hunger is telling me, what do I do? And another one could be having a piece of gum instead of eating a snack because you're told that hunger is bad and that hunger means that you did something wrong as opposed to, okay, let's get this hunger away and let's have a glass of water or chew some gum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously there is health benefits to not eating late in the evening, right? Like you can get a better sleep or, or, you know, like there's different things, but if you're eating in the evening, which is extremely common, maybe check that you've had enough food during the day and why you're heading to the fridge at nine o'clock at night instead of, you know, immediately just going straight for that as a, as a quote unquote bad thing. Like if you don't want to eat at night, maybe you need to eat more during the day. Yeah, that's a great point. Like checking in with why am I hungry? And, and if you're always hungry at the same time late at night, well, yeah, did I, did I have an adequate lunch? Did I eat dinner? Did I skip breakfast? And a lot of people also think when they're talking how you said, um, what did I do that day? Maybe what did you do the day before? Maybe you had a really intense exercise or maybe you went for a really long walk and that your body just is kind of recovering the next day. It doesn't have to be the same day where your body's trying to make up for something. So it really is a great tip to kind of check in and say, okay, what did I do today? What did I do yesterday? Why am I, why am I hungry? And then if, and then honor that hunger and and eat something. um, But then you can work on it in the future to make sure that you are nourishing yourself adequately after an exercise to make sure you don't have to keep overcompensating. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if, if people are still kind of struggling, like, well, what, what could my food rules be? I mean, just look at some of your most um, popular kind of fads going on on social media or what celebrities are endorsing, like a gluten-free diet. Nothing wrong with the gluten-free diet if you're celiac or, right, like if you can't tolerate it, but like, can you actually not tolerate it or are you just following something? Yeah. That's or like so veganism, right? Like, I know. So you, you have to really look at the why you're behind why you're doing it. Like you said, gluten-free, if you have celiac disease, that is a medical nutrition therapy tactic to keep your body safe. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing gluten-free because you think it's going to help you lose X amount of pounds because somebody on Instagram told you to, then there's a difference. Or kind of like you said, I remember thinking um, when I had some food rules that I was dealing through, um, one of the foods that came to mind was Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts were something that I just thought those are, they have no nutritional um, quality. They, they aren't, they aren't quote unquote good for me. I don't need to have them in the house. And as I worked through it, I just kept thinking, well, why do I think that? And I um, recently I went for a a longer run and I came home and I was like, I want a Pop-Tart. It just sounds so good. And it, it brought back some childhood memories it, it tasted good. It was really good, quick carbohydrates to get me some energy back after a hard exercise. Um, so you kind of reframe your thoughts around food. Um, and that was one of the things, kind of the food rules that I had to break down myself was Pop-Tarts are fine <laughs> and kind of working them into my diet in a healthy way. 
Yeah, and exactly. And you know, when someone says, oh, well, this has no nutritional value. Well, everything, you know, gives you energy. So mm -hmm. like, like you said, you, you went for a run, did you say? Yeah, a, run, a, a longer run than I'm used to. <laughs> yeah, like you, you needed some quick energy. Um, so I love, I love that you said that because we can incorporate these foods in a healthy way. And I bet like if you were to have said, no, you're not having that, you may have been more likely, I'm, you probably don't struggle with binging, but like if someone were to say, no, I'm not having that, chances are they're going to have three Pop-Tarts later on in the evening. That is, I tell my clients that all the time, that when you don't give yourself unconditional permission to eat the foods that you want, you're going to have to compensate for that sometime. And you probably are going to overeat. And now I have Pop-Tarts in my pantry and I know they're there. And if I want them, I can go get them and move on after I eat them. And I don't feel like I have to eat three or four because I'm never going to have them again. And that's what a lot of people say is, well, I have to eat, you know, five, six cookies at this one sitting because I'm never going to buy cookies again. And then you just feel that, like you said, that uncontrollable feeling, that binge coming on because you're giving yourself restriction around food. Yeah. It's always on Monday too. We've got to pay for our, our sins on a Monday, right? Yeah. So we got to make up for what we did over the weekend. Yeah. It's so, you know, when I, when I finally realized what I was doing, it was just like this weight had been lifted off of me. And I was just like, I can, I can eat whatever I want. Like, this is amazing. And you know, what's interesting is a lot of people are, are so fearful when they give themselves permission because they think, well, what if I, you know, gain all this weight or I can't stop myself? Um, what kind of advice would you give to someone when they're kind, when you're trying to transition them to this more intuitive eating? Because that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So with intuitive eating, the three things can happen with your weight. It can go down, it can stay the same, and it can go up. Um, and I, I cannot tell you what it's going to do. Um, and if anybody tells you what it, what it can do, they are probably misguiding you um, because we don't know your body. You know your body. Um, and when, and I hear that all the time, like you said, that if I give myself permission to eat, I'm going to eat everything inside and all my quote unquote bad foods. And your bodies are a lot smarter than you give them credit for. If you if you give yourself permission, let's just say um, one common food is donuts, to eat donuts every single day for breakfast, by probably day four, five, six, donuts are not going to sound good for breakfast mm -hmm. because your body knows I can have donuts whenever I want. So I don't, I don't crave them right now. So mm -hmm. you, may, you may crave some eggs and toast for breakfast on that day seven when you were supposed to be eating a donut because your body now, because your mind and your body know I can have these things whenever I want. I don't need to. I don't need to overconsume them on this day because I'm not going to have them for another X amount of months. Mm -hmm. And so, but I do. It, it's a very scary fear and a very valid fear of I don't know how this is going to affect me because our society puts so much emphasis on weight and so much, and we we think that the only thing that matters with our health is our weight. So we have to first break down that mentality and that barrier. And then once we've kind of come to the point where we're like, I'm ready to put my health in other things and put my value in other things besides my appearance and my body, then we can work on unconditional permission around food because you will actually give yourself unconditional permission. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Um, why 
why doesn't weight tell the whole story for our health? And do you encourage clients to stop weighing themselves? What, what's your take on that? So as a non-diet dietitian, I am not shaming anybody for wanting to lose weight mm -hmm. because I understand why you want to lose weight. I just am not going to prescribe weight loss to you if we're working together. That's kind of the difference and kind of the misinterpretation of what a non-diet dietitian means. A lot of people think that we shame people that want to lose weight and that's not the case because I understand why you want to lose weight. But with our weight and with um, BMI as an indicator of health, there is so much misinformation. Um, even if you, um, something I suggest somebody to do is Google the history of BMI and it is so interesting um, because they are so with BMI. If, if you're not if you're not familiar with it, as a listener, your it, it's categorized as numbers, and they made the numbers very easy to remember, so that healthcare professionals could easily understand what category you fell into without having to see a chart. So they have changed the numbers back and forth of overweight, normal. Um, all of these things over the years because they wanted to make it easier to understand. Mm -hmm. So with our health and with weight, you can lose, like we talked about, you can lose 20 pounds in a month by starving yourself, mm -hmm. but is that going to improve any lab values? Is that going to give you more energy? Is that going to help you with your stress management? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, and so with our health, if we, when we think of weight as the only indicator of health, we can miss so much many other important things like is our stress being affected? Is our sleep? Are we eating a, a, a variety of foods in an adequate diet? There are things that weight just doesn't tell us. And you can't look at somebody and know, quote unquote, how healthy they are, which is what we believe a society can do. Um, and same with PCOS. PCOS, women can be in all shapes and sizes. Um, you don't, it's not a one size fits all. And unfortunately, we just believe that if we lose X amount of weight, all of our problems are, are gone and we were going to feel so much better about ourselves, but it usually is not, not the case. Yeah. Especially when you're losing weight in such a, an unhealthy weight, you actually feel like shit, don't you? <laughs> yes. Yes. You have no, no energy. Yes. Yeah, no energy, no libido. Um, when I went through HA the last time, the first time I ever went through it was, through my eating disorder. And I mean, like it was intentional, but unintentional. Mm -hmm. um, but the second time I, it was completely unintentional. I didn't realize that I was under fueling myself and I started running more. I became a really efficient runner, which was, you know, so much fun to see that progression, but I just wasn't eating enough. And, uh, and then my grandpa passed away and I went through a lot of stress. My sleep really suffered and it was just kind of the perfect storm. Yeah. But, you know, I, had I not been looking at my weight, cause I spent about three years not weighing myself to mm -hmm. overcome my disordered behavior around food and body. But I started my clothes, my clothes started to, to get bigger on me. I started to lose weight. So my husband suggested that I start weighing myself just to kind of check in. And I was dropping weight significantly. And let me tell you, I felt terrible. Like it was horrible. I was cold all the time. Um, I had absolutely no libido. 
I, I may have, you know, looked better in short shorts, but it was like the worst time in my life. Like it was so not worth it. And I'm sure your, your uh, mental health and your emotional health were plummeted. Horrible. Um, yeah. yeah. And I say like, look better, um, in short shorts, very sarcastically, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, like, right. yeah, women think that life is going to be better when they lose weight and unless your mental health is, is up to where it should be, you're not going to feel better. And I love how you said, um, looking better in shorts, um, because a lot of the times as, as a society we do praise weight loss no matter how they did it um, or how how they lost the weight and we could be we could be praising an eating disorder we could be um praising a substance abuse problem or anxiety and depression getting worse we could be praising all of these things that, like you said we have no idea what they're going through um and we're and if they lost weight and they and, and that's all that matters then we we kind of miss the big picture of everything else going on. And I think that's a lot of times what happens, you know, even in healthcare that if we lost weight, oh, great, you did great, don't worry about it. like just keep going without, you know, asking them, well, are you okay? Do you feel better? Do you, are, 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 like you said, are you eating better? Are you eating more? Just all, all these questions that we don't ask when we just see the number go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, cause I'm in the fitness industry. I have now kind of officially left all of my positions in the fitness industry to pursue psychology, which has been, you know, life changing for sure. But I remember my client saying, Oh, you look so good. And you know, praising me. And, and I even like flat out said to them, I feel terrible. Um, I also found out that I had a wheat allergy and oh. I had absolutely nothing staying in my system at all so and probably very nutrient deficient too oh, because you weren't absorbing anything yeah i wasn't absorbing any anything and and it was really interesting because i was tested for celiac disease and it's not gluten it was wheat itself and i cut that out and i had been diagnosed with ibs as well like a while mm-hmm. ago and it wasn't ibs it was just this one thing and i started to you know, put weight on and, and my period came back and everything like life just changed. And yeah, I did have to put weight on and it's amazing. Um, just how wrong people have it when we're just looking at pictures on Instagram. Yeah. You're so right. And hit the nail on the head with everything. It's, it's so much more than one number and one look when we're talking about overall health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what um what other kind of specialties do you help women in in terms of like disordered eating or what what else do you do so like um so disordered eating um really any i feel like a majority of women can have some disordered eating tendencies um you don't have to be diagnosed with an eating disorder you don't have to have the look of an eating disorder to want to seek help you know if if food thoughts are consuming your daily life and you're not able to enjoy dinners out with friends or you're not able to go for a drink because you're worried about the calories in your drink or you can't you can't enjoy your meals with your kids because they're having chicken nuggets and those are on the bad list then you deserve help and we can work through intuitive eating as an approach to 
rid yourself of those diet mentalities and those food rules and really understand a more holistic approach to living more intuitively and listening to yourself rather, rather than all the outside demeanors. So I help women um, of all ages um, just kind of break free and feel more empowered in their, in their bodies to decide for themselves what they want to do and enjoy life. I mean, what's the point if we're not enjoying what we're doing day to day or, and if we're so stressed about, you know, our next meal or what we're going to eat or not eat. Um, and then I also do help uh, people that are recovering from an eating disorder and they need some outpatient help. So if they went to an IOP or if they went to an inpatient residential and now they're taking the steps to, kind of go back into their lives, but they do still need support. We, we work, you know, weekly, bi-weekly, whatever they need to make those efforts apply to their daily life and make sure that they don't lose all of the hard work that they gained by going to those, those different treatment areas. So those are some of the, er the areas that I like to specialize and help women in. Amazing. Um, with intuitive eating, I, lo I love intuitive eating. I talk about intuitive eating. I've had other people on the show talk about intuitive eating. What is the line between being an intuitive eater, but just eating whatever you want and say you actually do have some weight to lose. You have some health conditions. Maybe you have high blood pressure or hypertension or, or um, pre-diabetic. Like, would you prescribe intuitive eating to those clients? What, what would you do with that? So one of something that's really cool with intuitive eating is you can combine it with medical nutrition therapy mm -hmm. to help if you do have a specific symptom or disease that you're trying to handle. So like you said, with if you're pre-diabetic, you we can we can work together to regulate blood sugar and make very well well rounded meals with carbs and protein while also listening to your body to see what what sounds good to you because if you're just if you're not eating and you're not satisfied with what you're eating then not, it's not going to sustain so any intervention that I give you if you're not if you don't enjoy the foods that we're talking about then it's not going to help you in the long run so mental nutrition therapy by you know helping you reduce your blood pressure or cholesterol or even with um, celiac disease i mean there are things that you can you can be an intuitive eater while also having celiac disease i mean we just work to make sure that we keep you know the uh, the wheat and the barley and all of those things out of your diet while incorporating and still listening to your hunger and fullness cues and rejecting diet mentality and you know, in, in enjoying joyful movement. Um, because one of the principles of intuitive eating is gentle nutrition. Mm -hmm. It's usually just at the end of the journey. That way you can break through all those walls and barriers first and then incorporate some gentle nutrition interventions to help you with your pre-diabetic or have high cholesterol or, you know, or have PCOS or anything. Because the things that we talked about earlier in the episode with PCOS, those are medical nutrition therapy interventions. It's just putting it in a way that feels more of just like a daily life intervention rather than quote unquote, putting you on a diet. Yeah. Is that what you mean when you say gentle nutrition? Yeah. So things like stabilizing blood sugar or having a um, a protein with your carb for a snack. Those are all nutrition therapy interventions that we consider gentle nutrition when we're talking about intuitive eating. Yeah. How frustrated do you get with when people come to you and talk about cutting out carbs? I, it is, it can be frustrating, but a lot of people are just, and 
I, I don't fault them because that's what we're told. If we are pre-diabetic, if we have diabetes, um, I worked in a hospital setting, so I know what people are told or what they think. And a lot of people are scared when they have diabetes or they're diagnosed with pre-diabetes and they think, okay, if I just don't eat carbs, then I'll be good and I'll be fine. Um, and so it's just kind of educating. It's educating on what carbs do for our bodies and why our bodies need carbs and the different types of carbs. So once people hear that they are allowed to eat carbs, they usually are like, okay, maybe, let's see. And then we kind of break down those, those food rules and, and we help them incorporate carbs in a very healthy way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that is so true. Like I try, I try to like look at where someone is coming from as well. And why do they think this way? It, also reiterates our whole point what we started the show talking about you cannot go online and search out information and self-diagnose especially if you have a medical condition like like um, diabetes the type 2 like you can't go online and just follow some you know cookie cutter nutrition program it's dangerous and it's not helpful long term you need to seek out a qualified professional like a registered dietitian a registered nutritionist not even someone like me like a nutrition coach right like honestly you need to you need to seek out professional help with that that's so true i tell people all the time you can google a question about your health and find 10 different answers with 10 different interventions to do so it gets really confusing and like you said it can be even very detrimental to your health if you start to implement some of these things that have no science behind them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i see you know nutrition coaching is quite big in canada um and i see a lot of people crossing a lot of lines when they're within their scope of practice and you know it's kind of scary to see especially when uh, supplements are being recommended, you know, within my, my body um, of education, we're not allowed to recommend supplements or um, dosages of any kind of supplements. We work alongside doctors and dietitians and nutritionists. So if anyone is prescribing you something, especially if they've never even met you, like that's a huge red flag. Yes, definitely. If, if, if somebody's messaging you over Instagram trying to have you try this tea or this supplement or something, they, I mean, unfortunately, they probably just want the money. Yeah. Um, and usually those, those things are pretty expensive. So instead of, you know, and I understand if you are desperate for answers and for help, it, it makes sense why you would want to try this, these quick fixes. But like you said, talk to your doctor, talk to your dietitian before buying anything or taking anything that um, you've been prescribed by somebody that doesn't have that credential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also, um, I'd like to talk about one more topic and it's one that I'm like obsessed with uh, and you can let me know what you think about it, is fiber. Can you talk about fiber? Cause I'm just like in love with fiber. Yes, I love that. Um, that's funny because um, with my um, when I worked at a hospital as a dietitian, an outpatient dietitian, I gave a diabetes class, and one of the things I would say is if you don't listen to anything I say, focus on fiber. <laughs> I say that is the like, that is the gold standard of 
carbohydrates, of health, um, is adding more fiber to your diet. And it's funny because I'm sure being in the fitness industry, you have heard of the infamous keto and all of that. Um, and I get a lot of questions in, in the diabetes class of, well, should I just do keto? I've heard it's great. And I say, well, if you remember, I said, focus on fiber. And if you are on the ketogenic diet, then you have no fiber. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think fiber is one of the most important and beneficial things you can add to your diet. Now, you can have too much fiber, which we usually don't run into. Um, usually, we're eating, not eating enough. But, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, the more you can add those into your diet, the more regular you're going to be. Um, it helps with cholesterol levels, it helps with blood sugar balance, helps with energy and satisfaction. I mean, yes, fiber, I could go on and on about how, in, how important it is and how that is a very true medical nutrition therapy intervention you can incorporate into your diet, um, regardless of your weight, that is going to have lasting health impacts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does fiber do to our hormones, our endocrine system? So with, so with fiber, it helps with blood sugar balance, which can again help our endocrine system and our reproductive system to feel more adequate to do what it needs to do. So when we have fiber, when we, um, when we eat a carbohydrate that is, is lacking in fiber, it's going to spike our blood sugar, which any carbohydrate is going to increase your blood sugar. That's a natural path of physiology in our bodies. But with fiber, it spikes your blood sugar slower. So it kind of like I said, when you're incorporating protein with a carbohydrate snack, protein kind of has that same effect. It's going to slow your blood sugar spike. And when we're trying to regulate blood sugar and you know battle insulin resistance and regulate our hormones, we want blood sugar balance. And we don't want the highs and lows of blood sugar going up and down. So when you add fiber, it helps with that. Um, and then it also, it helps with like I said, making you more regular and gut health is so important. And the more we learn about the gut, the more we realize how much it impacts our overall health um, and our and our hormones. So if you can add more fiber into your diet, you know, and make yourself more regular and make sure you're having, you know, daily bowel movements, um, then you are going to be helping the whole your whole body system. Um, so anytime you can add more fiber, the better. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, back in my diet days, I tried keto, and it I it was awful. <laughs> it was terrible. I felt awful. Like you are just lacking in energy. And now anyone who tries to like, I've had people message me on Instagram saying, uh, "Would you like to promote this supplement?" I was like, "No, absolutely not." No, thank you. Like a keto diet, and just because you ate a tablespoon you know, of psyllium at every meal does not mean that you are getting the diversity first that you need with all the different um, sources of fiber. And it doesn't mean that you're getting enough fiber because, yeah. because that's what people will say um, when I say that I'm, I'm not a fan of keto. I'm not a fan of any diet, but I'm specifically not a fan of keto because I believe in eating fiber. <laughs> yeah, eating plants and eating a diverse and and when people come back and say, "Well, you can take this supplement or you can drink this powder and you can get what you need." Our bodies absorb the nutrients from food so much better than supplements and from powders and drinks. So, even if you are quote unquote having your fiber in a in a tea, if you are eating 
plants and whole grains and getting that diversity, like you said, in your gut, it's so much more beneficial than getting it from a supplement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's, um, what's plant-based eating like in the U S like, is there, is there a big movement of plant-based eating? There is in Canada. Yeah, I would say it's, it's, it's gaining popularity. Um, you know, adding more plants and, you know, meatless Mondays and things of those nature, um, kind of in the ballpark. And there is very great evidence-based research on, on, you know, increasing your plants, but it's kind of funny when you are eating more plant-based, you're eating more fiber. Mm -hmm. Um, so it kind of all goes back to that gold standard of this is something that you want in your body and you want things. And when you, when you go on diets that eliminate, you know, beans or grains or fruits, veg, you know, things that take away those things, you're taking away all that fiber and all that plant diversity um, in your diet. So plant-based doesn't go along with some of the fad diets out there, but it is something that is gaining popularity. And I do believe it's something that is, can, can be implemented in a healthy way. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important for you for everyone listening to realize, you know, when we're saying plant-based, we're not saying everyone needs to go vegan. Correct. Right. Like there's a, we don't want to, you know, kind of go from one disordered way of looking at food to another and saying all meat, all dairy, all eggs are bad. Like, can you, can you offer some guidance for people who are like, well, I need to go vegan now to get more plants? Yeah. So like you said, we don't, we don't want to go from one disorder thought to the other. And when you're thinking about plant-based, it's just thinking about how can I add more fruits, vegetables, things to my diet. So like I said, you could do meatless Monday. You could do one dinner a week with your family where maybe you have something. So maybe, maybe you try tofu instead of some chicken or, and it's not to say that again, Chicken is a great form of protein. I'm not telling you to eliminate chicken in your diet, but if you're trying to add more plants, or let's say that you're having um, a, a, a cheeseburger for dinner, and maybe you have a side salad. Maybe you just add plants. How can I add vegetables to my meals to add more diversity to my gut and add, add more plants to my diet without taking away other foods? We always want to think what we can add, not what we can subtract from our diet. Love that. Yeah. And that, that is definitely something that I've been preaching for quite some time now. Like let's add so much beneficial foods and that can include chocolate chip cookies and pizza and hamburgers, right? Like, yes. but let's add them all in instead of thinking about what we need to take out. And that, like, like you said, um, just kind of going with diet culture. Um, I could talk to you forever. I just want to ask you one more question. You're so, so full of information and knowledge. Um, what about sugar-free diets? So that is another big fad that we see out there. Um, and it's, you know, without getting too much into science, I mean, carbohydrates are sugar. Yeah. Your, your body breaks them down into sugar. And a lot of people, how we talked about before, feel out of control around foods that you know are high in sugar, and and sometimes it's because you don't ever allow, uh, allow yourself to eat them. So if you go on a sugar-free diet and you eliminate again all carbs because carbs break down into sugar in our body, then then what are we teaching ourselves? Mm -hmm. Or what are we going to do when we add back in that food? Because we're not going to know how to do that in a healthy, sustainable way. 
So whenever I'm talking to people and they're like, well, I'm just going to eliminate it because then I don't have to worry about it. And I'm, and I'm saying, okay, so you're 25 and you're telling me you're never going to have a piece of a, a, a birthday cake again, or you're never going to have some spaghetti and meatballs again. And they're like, well, I don't know. And it's like, well, why don't we, instead of eliminating it, why don't we talk about how we can, like, like we've been talking about, add it back into our diet in a way that gives yourself permission to eat it when you want to. So I'm not a fan of, you know, sugar-free diets or sugar detoxes because I don't believe that they're going to help you whenever you, the time comes to add it back in. Yeah, don't even get me started on detoxes. <laughs> uh, we could go on for hours about don't waste your money on detoxes on the internet, but we no. don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, we're so on the same page. It's not even funny. I, I, at one point, was all like the zero sugar. Again, you feel pretty terrible, especially when you exercise. Like, oh, yeah. Girl, you need that sugar. Yes, you need that quick energy. I have a, I have a bowl of jelly beans now sitting on my counter and it's just like, because they're there, like you just give yourself permission. Like you said, with the pop tarts in your cupboard, like you just have them when you want them. And it's, it's really quite freeing, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's so liberating just to not have to be preoccupied with food thoughts every day. Mm -hmm. Or to go to a restaurant and like, just actually order something off the menu without changing everything. Yeah, or worrying about all the calories and making, or, or trying to, you know, get within a certain calorie amount for dinner, just enjoying the company, enjoying the food, especially now when we don't get to go out to, out to dinner, you know, I hope when you go back to, to being able to go out with friends that you focus on all the joys of eating with friends and eating really good food, not how many calories am I eating? Yeah. So what advice can you give to to our listeners to start to develop a healthier relationship with food? Because that's what this is really about, isn't it? And uh, and start making some strides towards that new way of, of eating and living. Um, I would honestly, I would buy the intuitive eating book. Yeah. And then I would, I would seek out an intuitive eating dietitian um, to go through the book with you and to help you with exercises to break down the food rules and the diet mentality and giving yourself permission. Because like we talked about, this is a really scary thing to do. Um, and especially if you've had years and years of diet culture, you know, at you, it's going to be really hard to do on your own. Um, and it's going to be really hard to do it the right way on your own. So I guess my best, best advice is to seek out somebody that can help you go along with you on this intuitive eating journey. Because it's a lifelong thing. Like this isn't a diet. This is forever. Yes, yes. And you're and you're not gonna. I feel like with diets, we're told like we had a good day or we had a bad day. With intuitive eating, it's not like that. It's just it 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 is what it is. And like you said, you're going to you can't fail at intuitive eating. It just kind of evolves as you evolve. Mm -hmm. Love that. Um, where can we find you on online? Yeah, so um, I have an Instagram at Serenity Nutrition Co. Um, I also have a Facebook, um, and I recently have started a PCOS support group on Facebook. Um, so if you're interested in that, just find me on Instagram and um, DM me, and we can get you the link to that group. Um, and then I have a website, um, serenitynutritionco.com. If you're interested in working together, um, my information is there and I would love to set up. Um, I offer a free discovery call to see if we're a good fit. Um, and then I can help you with your intuitive eating journey. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show. It just like an hour just flew by. You're so such a wealth of knowledge. And it's so nice to have someone advocating for health at every size and, you know, really getting down to the root of the issues that we face with food and body rather than just slapping a diet on it. I so appreciate you having me on. It was so fun. And I just appreciate that, that you're doing the work as well. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel on iTunes and please leave me a review so we can get this message of better health out there. Have a great day and remember, you are powerful over your health.